Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for uh, worshiping this morning with zeal. It is edifying. It's edifying to be with the people of God and to sing uh, with vigor, praise songs to God. So I hope you feel uh, encouraged and um, edified. Today we are going to look at a text in the book of 1 Thessalonians uh, that's caused not just a little stir, a little controversy, and I think specifically it would be fair to say in the last hundred or so years that controversy has really um, ramped up. And so we want to look at um, this passage today and study it together Uh, The pastor theologian, now deceased, John Stott, uh, writes this about the controversy surrounding just two verses here, verse 15 and 16 of today's passage. This is what he says. These two verses, sometimes called the Pauline polemic against the Jews, have been described as violent, vehement, vindictive, passionate, intemperate, bitter, and harsh. Uh, Some have argued that if Paul wrote these two verses, and many want to try to say that he hasn't, that he didn't write these two verses, though I think that's an an error, that's false. If he wrote them, they want to say he's an anti-Semite. Thus we have to ask, is that the case? Is this passage a wholesale condemnation of the Jewish people? Is this an example of anti-Semitism or of biblical racism? We must get to the very bottom of what Paul's saying here. Because it doesn't just mean that Paul is having accusations made against him. It means that the Bible is having accusations made against it. And therefore Christianity is being accused. This is very important for us to understand and to think about and to come to a conclusion on. And by the way, if that doesn't pique your interest in this sermon, then I do not know what I could possibly do to set up what I'm about to preach. You should check for a pulse if you're not interested now in finding out if the Bible is a racist text. And we need to think about these things. We need to have answers on this matter. So are you ready? That's not a rhetorical question. Are you ready? Yes, let's get into this and let's find out what God's word says. Let's dig in by reading uh, the text together and then we're going to pray that it wouldn't be Jason Abbott today that teaches you, but that you would be hearing from the Lord. Here's what is written in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 13, hear the word of God as it's recorded there. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen 
as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. Now I'm going to invite you to pray with me that God again would be our teacher this morning. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we want to understand these verses. But more importantly, as we gather every Sunday together as a local church body, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your voice. Teach us, Heavenly Father. Stir your Holy Spirit up in us. Open our eyes. Open our minds. Open our hearts. Transform our lives through this exercise in hearing you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, in order to make some sense of this text for us, I want us to pursue two points, or you could really call it uh, two arguments that I'm going to make from these verses. So here's the first point or the first argument. We, as believers, do and don't preach the gospel. We, as believers, do and don't preach the gospel. The gospel. That may seem strange to you, but I hope to make sense of it in just a moment. Okay, so that's the first point, first argument. The second is this there are only two nations. Or you might say it this way there are really only two kinds of people. So again, that may be strange, it may be a bit provocative, but what I want to do is pursue. That argument and the first argument in the next 30 or so minutes that we might be edified and encouraged and built up as the people of God. So let's begin. We do and don't preach the gospel. And and I understand this from verse 13 of today's text. That's where I'm, I'm making this argument from, verse 13. Now, I don't know what exactly you think about our Sunday worship gathering. Like what you think is taking place right now. I don't know what you think the nature of this event is. And I'm really speaking most specifically now about the preaching of the word of God that takes place on Sunday mornings. The preaching that usually Benjamin or I do. And I'm not talking about whether you prefer Benjamin's preaching to mine or mine to his. I really could care less about who you prefer as a preacher, what I'm discussing is what you think is happening. What's the character, the nature of what's happening right now? Friends, what you think about the nature of that is of supreme importance. I can't state that strongly enough. What you believe about the nature of what's taking place right now is of supreme importance. Back in 2001, 
I went to a U2 concert in Chicago. I was a seminary student. My brother-in-law and I were both seminary students. And so we had flexible schedules, as seminary students often have. And uh, since U2 was coming to town at the United Center, uh, we decided to go down and take in this concert. And this was the Elevation Tour. So you probably, if you know, you know, 2001, I was, I don't know how old, but I'm, I'm getting older. My references are getting older. But the Elevation Tour was a special tour that if you went really early, when they opened up the gates, you could run in. And you could get a a prime spot right next to the stage. So my brother-in-law and I went really early. And we stood in line for a long, long time. And we got one of those prime spots. We were so close that at one point during the concert, Bono reached out his hand. And I reached out my hand. And we held hands for a few seconds. (laughs) It's a special moment that we shared. Special moment. I'm sure he remembers it to this day. But, you know, we had to work for that experience. We had to plan for that. We had to to make that a priority. Friends, whenever they finally opened those doors, people were sprinting to the front. There was nobody who was walking casually to the back. Everybody wanted to get as near to the stage as they could. Why? Because it was you too. It was Bono. It was the edge. They didn't want to miss a note. They didn't want to miss a lyric. And so we were all charging forward to take in that experience. It was important to us. At this point, you're wondering what this has to do with anything. Just bear with me. Suppose that next Sunday, John Piper or Mark Driscoll or Sinclair Ferguson, or Matt Chandler, or for the more mature among us, Chuck Swindoll was booked to preach here at Community Evangelical Free Church. Suppose that next week, one of those preaching pastors was going to preach right here. How do you imagine people would respond to that? Do you think anybody would linger long in the cafe? Do you think anybody would sit in bed and say, you know what, I'm too tired, I'm not going today. And if you think that there would be a special priority placed on making it that Sunday, why? Why would that be specifically very important to people? Where is Jason going with this? Do you think John Piper's really coming next week? I knew, I knew Pastor Benjamin had connections. Maybe he's our next co-pastor. <laughs> Friends, what is the nature of a U2 concert or of a famed preacher's sermon? What about those makes us prioritize them, sprint to them, sit in rapt attention while listening to them. Or to bring us back to my original question, what do you think I'm doing? What's the nature of this preaching moment right now? Well, Paul tells us exactly what the nature of this moment is. He says that we preach the gospel and simultaneously 
we don't preach it. Look at verse 13 with me again. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. Friends, when the Bible is being accurately preached and and illuminated for us, opened up for us, it is not me or Benjamin or John Piper who preaches. It is God who is speaking to us in that sermon. It is our creator who is speaking to us. Uh, Something infinitely more glorious than a U2 concert is taking place right now and takes place Here and in other churches around the world. Every Sunday. This is important. This is significant. I wonder if you believe me. I wonder if you actually think that way. About what we're doing right now together. I'm not making this stuff up. This is what's been believed and confessed in the church for centuries. Just listen to this section of the Second Helvetic Confession. And if you've never heard of the Second Helvetic Confession, it was simply a Reformed confession composed in the 1500s. But here's what they say about the preaching of the Word of God. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. And that neither any other word of God is to be invented nor is to be expected from heaven. And that now the word itself which is preached is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. For even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless, the word of God remains still true and good. Do you see? Even through my sinful motives, even through all my inadequacies, God speaks through his word to you. Even when the least eloquent summer intern is preaching, and this is no shot against you, Noah Gwynn, said in first service, I'll say it again, he may be the most eloquent summer intern on the face of the earth. Even when he's preaching or anyone is preaching the word of God, it is God who speaks. Amen. You know, sometimes in 16 years of ministry, I've heard people say, you know, we visited this church and, oh, bummer, it was the youth pastor who was preaching or one of the elders. Or an intern. That's not how we should view what's happening. It is the word of God that's being preached. It is our Lord who speaks to us. We should listen as even if Paul himself were preaching to us. Or Jesus. Because Jesus is preaching to us. We should have a rapt attention in this very moment. To hear the voice of God. Speaking to us. We live at a time when the weekly Sunday gatherings of the faithful are 
without a doubt being undervalued. They may have been undervalued in the past, but I can tell you right now, I know they're being undervalued. What, what takes place on a Sunday morning in an Orthodox church, in a church that's preaching the gospel, is undervalued in our culture today. And part of that's due, I think, to a misconception of what is taking place here. The sense that not much happens in Sunday worship. The idea that it's not all that important to show up on Sunday morning and gather with other believers. If, however, what Paul and the confession say about the preaching of the word of God is true and the gathering of the faithful is true, if it's God speaking through the preaching, then what could possibly be more important? Nothing could be more important than hearing from our Lord through the preaching of the word. Do you believe that? Friends, I have one more sermon to preach to you after today. This is not about me. This is not about putting butts in the seats so I can feel big and cool and awesome. This is about you. This is about correcting perhaps an erroneous view of what takes place on Sunday morning in the church. This is about reorienting you to what happens when we gather together as the faithful and hear the word preached. Are you going to prioritize what takes place here? Are you going to come expecting to hear the voice of God on Sunday mornings? I hope so. Nothing could be more important. Nothing could be more important. The church will not survive on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. This is part of hearing those words from the mouth of God. Let's move to the controversy I mentioned in the introduction. I'll deal with it in our second and final point. There are only two nations. Verse 14 to verse 16 is where I see this argument, this point being made. There are only two nations. Uh, Paul appears on first glance to say some pretty severe and sweeping things about the Jews here. Is he being anti-Semitic? Is he holistically condemning them? Is this an example of biblical Racism. Well, the short answer, I believe, is no. Not in any way. But we need to see how. We need to understand why that's the case. So look again at these verses with me. Beginning in verse 14, here's what he says. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. So we need to notice some things here. We need to pay attention to some things here. First, we have to notice that Paul 
again, as he has so often already in this letter, begins with the thematic of imitation. The church in Thessalonica imitated the churches of Judea. And because of this, because they followed their example, and if you remember my sermon from two weeks ago, the example of Christ Jesus by following their example, because they have followed the example of Jesus Christ and these other churches, the Thessalonians experienced what? Persecution. But from whom? See, that's important. Who is it that Paul says persecutes them? The Thessalonians. Their countrymen. Their own countrymen did. We mustn't miss that. You see, Paul is talking to a group of Thessalonians who are being attacked by other Thessalonians. And he says this is precisely what happened to the Jews who followed Jesus who became Christians, they were attacked by other Jews, their own countrymen. Following Jesus, Paul explains, will create a great divide, even between your own countrymen, your own friends, your own family members. Isn't this exactly what Jesus told us during his earthly ministry? Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 51 and on. Jesus says this, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Paul's not drawing ethnic or racial lines here. He's got a far bigger category or categories in mind. Far more profound divisions in mind. He highlights an ultimate divide. The divide following Jesus makes. Uh, The divide God the Father makes between Those who will accept his son as Savior and Lord. Place their faith in him and follow after him no matter what comes. And those who will reject Jesus as Savior and Lord and not follow after him. There's only really two kinds of people, Paul is saying. Those who follow Jesus and those who do not. Those who will receive reward in heaven and those who will receive the wrath of God. This isn't a racial statement at all. Paul says the Jews who have set themselves in opposition to Jesus and the gospel by doing so have set themselves in opposition to the Lord. And likewise, he's saying, your own countrymen who oppose and persecute you, Thessalonians, by doing so have set themselves in opposition to the Lord. Friends, as believers, when we are persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. They're persecuting us because of Jesus. There are only two kinds of people in this world, according to the Bible. Those who follow Jesus and those who do not. That's the divide. That's the first thing we have to observe and notice. The second is this. 
Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And sometimes I, I just, when people object to this and they say he's making racist statements, I'm like, he is Jewish. He was a Jew who loved his countrymen with a deep and intense love. He longed that they'd turn to Jesus, even if it meant that he had to come under a curse and be rejected for them. He loved his countrymen. He loved Israel. Think about what he says in Romans chapter 9, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In fact, Paul's habit, even after he wrote this letter, was to go to a city, and the first place he would go was to the synagogue, to the Jews, and preach the gospel. Now, that would be a strange, strange thing for somebody to do who was racist towards the Jews. He loved them. And he recognized that Jesus was creating a great and important divide. He wanted them to see Jesus as their Messiah, their Lord, their Savior. Last thing we need to observe here is this. Paul seems to be, if you look at all of his writings, one of the least racist or bigoted people who ever lived. Rather than making distinctions based on a person's gender or social status or ethnicity, the Apostle Paul seems far more apt to get rid of those distinctions because of the good news of Jesus Christ. He's constantly preaching this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not emphasizing the division so much as the unity that trusting in Christ brings. These are small distinctions, Jew and Greek, slave or free, male or female. Small distinctions, socioeconomic status. Small distinction, Jesus brings unity, he says. Paul doesn't divide people according to their race or ethnicity or gender. He doesn't discriminate in that way. He's for uniting and advancing all humanity. And how do you do that? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Through the gospel. That's his mission. And eventually, that's what Paul would die for. Serving his Lord. Unity, not division. He died for unity in Christ. Yet, as I said earlier, there is a divide. Paul refers to it in this very passage. Jesus spoke of it during his earthly ministry. The narrative of scripture revolves around it. It is the main problem in human history. It's the main problem. Our rebellion and sin against our holy creator. That's what divides. Our rebellion and sin against our holy creator. That's what divides. It's the great and main problem we face. Since the beginning, this has been the problem, the tension, what we needed a solution for. 
But the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that Jesus has bridged the divide. Jesus has opened the door. Pick your metaphor, whatever you want, that Jesus has made peace between us and God, that he's taken care of our problems. And if we align ourselves with him by trusting that he died for our sins and he paid our penalty, we become a new race, a new people. There are only two nations, two kinds of people, those outside of Christ and those inside of Christ. We can become the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's who you really are if you're a follower of Jesus. Friends, in what way are you creating distinctions which the Lord does not? You see, part of the reason people read these verses and they think that Paul is being racist is because so often in the church, we've used verses like these to be racist. It's true. So here's the challenge. You think about the distinctions you make. You think about uh, the divisions you're creating. How you look at people. How you categorize them. If it's not the way that God divides, then repent. Repent of the kinds of distinctions, the kinds of bigotry, the kinds of divisions you set up when you look at other people. And I can think of all kinds of ways today that we and the church are making divisions that simply God does not make. I mean, we look at people from a different political party and we just think, well, there's no way God loves them. But for the grace of God and Jesus Christ, you're the same person as those that you divide, those that you relegate those that you cast out the same person but for the grace of God and Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus Christ and as you repent when you see these areas in your life as you repent remind yourselves of your true identity in Christ Jesus you are a citizen of the kingdom of God in this sinful and fallen world that is easy to forget sometimes we think of ourselves as citizens of the United States and part of this group or that group, but above all of those kinds of groups that we want to be a part of, we are mainly, most ultimately, a part of the kingdom of God if we follow Jesus Christ. That's our true identity. And it is glorious. It is beautiful. And we need to remind ourselves when we repent of the distinctions we're making that that's who we really are. Sons and daughters of our creator in Christ Jesus. I was reading a book this week and its author described the Apostles' Creed as a believer's pledge of allegiance. I really liked that. I thought that was provocative. This ancient creed, perhaps the oldest creed that exists in the church, is our, our, our kind of pledge of allegiance to God. It reminds us who we serve, what we believe, what knits us together, so to speak. And so I, I hope you will indulge me right now and you will recite this with me and with everybody here. And as you're doing so that you will reflect on your true identity in Christ, who you really serve, where your allegiances really lie. 
And that there are really only two groups. And that part of your mission as the people of God is to reach that other group. To love them, to care for them, to preach the gospel to them, to see them transformed from, from condemnation to, to exaltation in Christ Jesus. So that's, I want you guys, not, you're not going to stand, you're going to sit there, but you're going to speak out loud with me this pledge of Christian allegiance. So it's going to be up here on the screen for me and here on the screen for you. And I never know when I have a microphone on and I'm doing like a corporate reading whether I should just turn it off. I think I will because otherwise my voice is so loud and all you guys hear is me. But I want you to hear your brothers and sisters in Christ reciting this with you. And then after we're finished, I'm going to pray and then we have an opportunity to again reflect on what unites us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So here we go. I'm turning off my mic. All right, I'm live again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that today we've all heard from you, that we've felt conviction by your Holy Spirit, and that our eyes have been focused more perfectly, more beautifully on our Savior. Who, yes, he divides. But across barriers that we can't even imagine unity, he also unites. Far more than dividing, he unites. And we want to be a people who unite in Christ Jesus. That are being able to glorify you as we serve you and love you and worship you. By being a part of the Great Commission. Until that glorious day. When our Savior and Lord comes again, it is his name that we pray these things. Amen.